0: Live from Salt Lake City, this is Heart of the Matter, a really great program tonight, uh, especially for our younger, uh, Not we don't have that many younger viewers, but for uh, people who might be interested in a younger perspective. I'm very excited about this because we have uh, Samantha and Tanner from the infamous Zelf on the Shelf. And anybody who is LDS, that's the picture of the two. If any of you have been LDS, probably, first of all, you'll know who Zelf is, uh, but Zelf on the Shelf and Tanner and Samantha are going to let us in on their lives. They're young. I was 30 years old when uh, the oldest one was born, so uh, they come with a different worldview, different perspective on all sorts of things. Plus, Samantha's from uh, London, so uh, and, and and Tanner's from the exotic place of Arizona, so we have quite the combination of Culture clash and, and all sorts of things that are going to happen on the show tonight. So, uh, But first, I want to show you something that's really important. A uh, week from Thursday, not this Thursday, but next Thursday, there's a premiere, and we want to show you a spot here in Salt Lake City, and you got to come. you got to support this cause. Let's take a look. Hey, you guys. It is June 11th right now as I sit here with Christy Johnson. a guest that we had last July three parts. You probably watched it if you've uh, been keeping up with the shows. But uh, in a week and two days, three days, uh, Christy and her team and everybody behind her is going to be airing this movie, No Crime and Sin. Show your uh, shirt, No Crime and Sin. Where is it going to be shown? Let's just get to the basics quick. It'll be at
1: the Rose Wagner Theater. Here in, in the Salt Lake. Correct.
0: All right. What time?
1: Uh, the doors open at six. Uh, the program's from seven to nine, but it'll open up at six. The doors.
0: And uh, you're going to be, uh, tickets are eight bucks. Uh-huh. You spend that much every day on coffee or something. Eight bucks, Rose Wagner Theater, to see a fantastic uh, film and tell us about it. Well, it's called
1: No Crime and Sin. It's the documentary about our family's story. And uh, people will be able to meet our Emmy Award winning filmmakers and we have a fantastic panel, uh, very special guests that have been flown in. It's gonna be a great event.
0: Wow, yeah. so all of that's included in the prize. It is. And there's gonna be a panel discussion or individual? Uh... There'll
1: be a panel discussion. It's uh, gonna be hosted by and moderated by Kim Fisher.
0: Okay, a big name here in Salt Lake City. Yeah. Also, uh, the whole purpose is to advocate for? Change. Right.
1: So we're teaching people how to uh, report Enforce and empower, okay. which creates advocating for change.
0: And you're talking about any subject, or especially regarding
1: child sexual abuse.
0: Okay. So uh, we have, and I just have to be straight. I'm putting you right on the spot. Okay. She doesn't know I'm going to say this, but right now in our state and people who are interested in this uh, type of thing, we've had kind of a black eye been given to us because of McKenna Denson, and uh, and it because a lot of things that she's come out with have been shown to be uh, untrue not everything but a lot of things has do you think that's gonna hurt
1: you know I don't know uh, our story is completely different uh, what makes you know the film great also and our story is that our father does confess on film on film but he's also written letters of confession so this film you know some people have called it anti-mormon without really realizing what happened in our story. But there is so much mercy shown uh, to our father in this film, and it's absolutely beautiful. It's an incredible story, and the the ending's really good, and it gives people hope, and that there is, you know, a, a chance to move forward in life and to advocate for others. So,
0: Now, this started off as Glass Temples, right? Right. It's, it's now more than doubled in length.
1: Pretty much, yeah.
0: And so it's not just Glass uh, Temples revisited, it's... Nope. Much more, yes. And if you care about the subject, if you care about what uh, Christy and her siblings have gone through, uh, she and I go way back to when we were teenagers. <laughs> I did everything I could to try to hit on her at the steak dance. She refused me. She refused everything about my advances. Take note. And girls. now I get to sit on stage and hold her hand. Uh, in any case, um, again, one more time: Rose Wagner Theater, June? Thursday, six o'clock, June twentieth. Doors open. Right program starts at
1: it starts it's from seven to nine but the doors open at six and there'll be a lot of things happening around that time period
0: okay and one more thing christy's going to come back there is this is just scratching the surface of this uh film and what's going on with it It, there's a lot more that she's going to discuss with us in a couple weeks when we're going to sit down again for part four of christy and sean show in that order (laughs) and we're going to learn all about uh what she's doing and why it's so important now thanks my sister
1: no thank you appreciate it
0: all right check that out June 20th Thursday Tanner and Samantha thank you for taking the time to come uh, over here and sit with me we've never met you've been kind over the emails to uh, to uh, accept the invitation and uh, I've seen some of the things you've done in fact we're gonna show a clip uh, of something you've done that I really love Uh, but What we do on our show is we get to know our guest without me knowing anything about you We I I just want to learn about you like we sat down in a coffee shop didn't know each other And I want to learn about where you came from why you're here where you're going Uh, Want to know about your proclivities as kids. I want to know what you were like as LDS uh, people uh, your level of devotion to the church um things like that and why don't you both we'll we'll start with samantha and let's just go through early life and then when you kind of come to a break we'll go to tanner and just learn about the two of you prior to uh zelf on the shelf and its wonderful creation so okay born
2: where i was born in essex in england it's a suburb of the london area Um, only child, and my parents got divorced when I was about 10, so pretty small family.
0: Mm. Uh, Parents, members of the church?
2: No, I was raised sort of um, agnostic atheist, but my I was a brownie when I was younger, so I would occasionally go to like a Church of England service um, to earn like points (laughs) literal brownie brownie points points, yeah (laughs) um and my primary school was like vaguely christian they would have a vicar come in now and then um and as a kid i think i always um i felt like something of a fondness for jesus like i was definitely agnostic but um would sort of pray in my head sometimes like just in case there was anything there um yeah
0: was there anything there? <laughs> uh,
2: no, it would be my answer <laughs> now. he didn't show but... up to you, right no. <laughs> <Nope. laughs>
0: so, uh, uh, in school, grade school, we call it grade school here. Mm. Uh, maybe that's primary school for mm-hmm. you.
3: Yeah.
0: Uh, junior high school, high school, what we would call that. Mm-hmm. What were you? Were you involved in? Were you academically driven? Athletically driven? What were you
2: about? I was not athletically driven. <laughs> um, definitely more academic. Growing up as an only child, I would spend a lot of time reading. So. Um, yeah I feel like just reading so much kind of made me more intellectual and gravitated towards that.
4: I see. And also quite theatric, huh?
2: Yeah, I did some drama. Um, Was never exceptional, but yeah, Uh liked to sing, liked to act a bit.
0: Wow, okay. And then how did you come to know Mormonism?
2: So when I was about 15, I had a friend who I discovered was Mormon. I think we'd been friends for a couple of years, and I had never come up. Um, but yeah, I became friends with him and uh, sort of got introduced to the missionaries through his family.
0: Mm. Took the lessons.
2: Yeah, thinking that it was um, like an opportunity to just learn more about my friend's religion. wasn't trying to join a church.
0: I see. And so then, how did you join the church?
2: Essentially, just got sucked in through that. Um, I was young, impressionable. I think the fact that I'd always had, um, I don't know, I'd felt like slightly drawn to religion in my life, but had never really learned much about it, mm-hmm. um, and was a late teenager, so sort of was ripe for being converted to a high demand religion.
0: Got it. Did, did you, uh, and we'll just stay on this for a second before we go to Tana, did you believe Yeah. Did, the Joseph Smith story?
2: Yeah, so it was definitely um you know, when I first started learning, I could sense that the the missionaries were sort of putting pressure on me. Um and felt uncomfortable with that, but at the same time was just so vulnerable to um I don't know, get, getting sucked in, I guess. Mm-hmm. Um my Mormon friends' family is, was lovely, is lovely. Um so I was really attracted to that whole aspect of it having grown up in a sort of turbulent home. Mm-hmm. Um yeah, so it was one of those things where the love bombing was really effective. Um, it, it was genuine love, I think, but um, yeah, and then I sort of began to conflate those feelings of kind of joy and peace that I'd feel being around this loving woman family with, you know, what they're saying must be true, and then um, within quite a short space of time became very devout. Like, it, it wasn't something I, um, I don't know, sort of flippantly joined, It was. it became this really important thing in my life I was all in
0: and that was 15 16 um, so I,
2: was, I think I had one missionary lesson when I was 15 and then started getting them again at 16 and joined the church at 17
0: Wow.
2: Yeah.
0: all right anything else to add to that uh, fast cover of your life thus far
2: um, I don't think so okay. <laughs> the basics
4: Tanner okay so I grew up in Arizona and uh, my family moved to Flagstaff when I was probably about 10 uh, which was kind of a dynamic shift from being a predominantly Mormon area to less Mormon, uh, more liberal region and my family was super LDS so my dad was my bishop all growing up um, and big family, seven kids and the church was everything like I learned how to read reading the Book of Mormon um, the, our family home evening game of choice was Book of Mormon trivia. You'd get like a little chocolate chip if you could get the answer right. So I was like the only three-year-old on earth who knew where Ammon <laughs> fed the King Lamoni's sheep <laughs> at the water, you know, waters of Sebas. You know, this tiny little kid. Um, so I, I, you know, I loved it, and, and we have. Uh, I used to say, love my family, and and we all get along really well. And I think um, a lot of people look to our family as this like ideal mormon family that's got it all and is like so happy and Mm -hmm. um and so like sam said about the family that she was kind of drawn into that's kind of how we were it was just like oh my god this is great and we'd memorize we had family scripture study every single morning and um you know we did the early morning seminary thing and we memorized the family a proclamation to the world together yeah just really really in it and um And it wasn't so much about the, like, just the association of being Mormon, because there are Mormons like that, and I think part of my parents' desire to move out of Mesa was to kind of get out Mm -hmm. of the, you know, my mission president used to say, uh, Mormons are like manure. If you get too much of them in the, wrong, in the same space, they start to stink. They have to be spread out to do good. <laughs> and I think my parents kind of had that attitude, like, let's get out of this place where everyone's Mormon and go somewhere else. And, and because it was less about the culture and more about the core things, um, that's kind of how I grew up. Was, was, uh, it was about Jesus, and it was about loving people and serving people. And so, you know, every Saturday of my life was... Uh, you know, growing up was going out and helping somebody move, working in the soup kitchen, because that was how my parents were. Did you mind that? A, a little bit, but as my dad said, it gave me character or something. I don't know. Character That's what he also said about working for free, so I don't know. <laughs> um, but yeah, uh, it was every, you know, perfect idyllic upbringing, and I was always trying to preach the gospel. My best friends, uh, my best friend growing up ended up joining the church, um, and so now that I'm out, it's kind of <laughs> funny to see him at reunions and things. but uh, uh, yeah, and as far as other things go, I, I from a tiny, age of a tiny kid, I liked making videos mm. and uh, did that through high school and through college. Um, I started writing because Mormon leaders encouraged me to have a journal, so did my mom, and so I would start you know doing kind of long-form writing, and then in college, kind of accidentally got sucked into that, but I guess that's for later. So yeah, always doing different performance, communication type stuff um, growing up. But, but yeah, the, really, I didn't think much about that because the only thing that really mattered to me was being Mormon, the one true church on earth and spreading that to other people. And there were different points. Am I just rambling? In? No, I, don't I don't know. was <laughs> like, this you let good. me go, so I'm going. This uh, is good. Uh, I felt like I had a, a genuine, sincere um, conversion like it wasn't just something that my parents handed to me and that i ran with i felt like i had had the personal experiences necessary to know that that god lived that jesus was the christ and that therefore the church was true i never got a specific answer about the church or the book of mormon or joseph smith but i but i associated the strong feelings that i had with the context in which i had them which was the church
0: um yeah so, uh, we're going to see in uh, part two of our talks uh, one of your films, which is uh, excellent. Just superb. I, I love it. And I think it is great art and very meaningful. Uh, Thank you. I bet it's been misunderstood. <laughs> uh, but I, I, I think I understood it fairly well. But we'll talk about that. So, the team, we, we're just briefly going to say, we have the intellectual side, sort of, and we have the artistic side.
2: Would yeah, you, I think, think that that's a fair good to say. Yeah, I mean, Tanner's incredibly intellectual. Yeah. <laughs> we
4: say, Sam's the Zamself and I'm the Shelf. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Nice.
0: So, uh, one thing quickly, uh, Tanner, you said you had some experiences, uh, and can you, uh, are, would, are you willing to explain what those are, that helped you affirm that the church was due, they weren't directly about the church, but you know, that God was there, Jesus was there, whatever, were they spiritual experiences that you just felt the burning or (laughs) did some sign happen or what what, what was it that convinced you these things are true at that point in your life?
4: Cool, so uh, the first time I can remember feeling the Holy Ghost was when I was eight, I got baptized and I remember saying, it feels like a candle in my chest and you know, it's like a warm light feeling, I'm sure everyone here's had something like that and um and so that was like okay an eight-year-old i'm this is right never have a reason to question and then um when i was about 12 had different emotional experiences you know hearing a choir sing silent night and just you know stopping and thinking wow jesus came to earth for me what and just kind of being overwhelmed by that especially feeling you know uh teenage years early or preteen years feeling very, um, you know, kind of out of place, and um, self-conscious, and and I felt like I had found this friend in Jesus, and then about 14, 15, I don't know, um, I was really going through uh, a depressive time, just feeling really worthless and sad, a lot of it now I'm realizing was a lot of the shame that Mormonism instilled in me, and, you know, thinking I was a son of perdition, because I, you know, I had a wet dream, or you know, something like that. Where it's just so much guilt for nothing, and so I'm just, oh, I'm a horrible person. Are we allowed to swear on the show? I should, you can, I can watch my mouth. <laughs> like <want>. cool. Cool. <laughs> so, uh, <laughs> um, yeah, was feeling really sad, and I read a book that was, you know, talking. Uh, regardless, I I walked away from reading this book feeling very grateful to be in the body that I was in, to be the person that I was. was Because at the time, I was feeling, you know, I'm, I'm kind of slight of frame. And as a kid, I was like, oh, I'm so small. No girl will ever love me. And I'm so ugly. And I, I have vitiligo, so I could, you know, see these white patches coming on my skin and just thinking, oh, I'm just totally unworthy of love. And then um, after reading that book and, and feeling, wow, like, it could be so much worse. I, I ought to, like, spend less time you know thinking bad about myself and and just be grateful for the experience that I do have and you know have to come from a good family and to be in this able body and you know all that so uh, I finally said a prayer of gratitude which I had not in some time and and as I'm expressing this gratitude I just felt like just this overwhelming piercing love and it it felt like a laser beam in my heart and I felt you know the the words that came to mind were I know you and that to me was truly life-changing. I walked away from that saying, "Well, God knows me, so what else is there?" Mm. Um, I I want everyone to feel like this, and everyone to know that they're loved and accepted, and that they don't have to change anything about them. They just they just have to accept the love that's already there waiting for them. Mm. And so, you know, even as a teenager, that felt very real to me. And I'd, I'd sit in church and I think, I don't know if these people really get it. Like, mm. uh, I, I knew some did, and and I wasn't you know sitting there trying to judge them because I felt genuine love for them because. Because I felt it for me. I know if, if God loves me this much, then surely he loves all these people the same amount. And mm. and so from that point on, like church was my life. And even though it wasn't like Book of Mormon is true, Joseph Smith is a true prophet, because I had nothing else to weigh it against, sure. those things were just sort of implied. Mm. And so everything was, okay, I'm going to prepare for a mission. And I'm going to go on a mission. And I'm going to, you know bring people this love, this mm. transforming love. Mm. And so that was really the only thing that I cared about. So, you know, artistic uh, ventures and developing skills and those things, and I, you know, identifying as anything other than a Mormon s- felt trivial
0: to me. Wow. It's fascinating. Uh, you usually don't hear, um, in the many people we've talked to who have been LDS, that many talk about Jesus. You've talked more about Jesus in your experience, uh, separate really from Mormonism than mm-hmm. most guests. Usually, LDS people you know, talk about the church and Joseph. And, yeah, yeah. But you, have, you just right here have mentioned more about Jesus. I don't know if that's re- still with you or whatever. We'll find that out. But it's just interesting to me that younger generation, you uh, came more around with the Jesus thing. Because at my age, walking out, it was all Joseph. Yeah, yeah. It. it was Joseph. So that's really fascinating.
4: Yeah, by the time we got on the scene, they're trying to switch the narrative
0: a little bit more. Uh, yeah, 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 definitely. Yeah. Uh, they made Jesus Christ big. Yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, what, um, so did you find yourself, um, Samantha, uh, engaged with the ward? Did you find your friends there? Did, you, did your social group come from everybody who was LDS then?
2: Um, I mean, definitely not. My social group wasn't predominantly LDS people oh. um, but I did uh, kind of assimilate into this ward and develop these real relationships with people there yeah mm-hmm. but continued to have I mean all my friends weren't Mormon other than that one friend so mm-hmm. yeah
0: and you bought in full force at 17 did you stay full force through those teen years stay.
2: yeah so I stayed um, full force <laughs> until so I went to BYU-Idaho graduated um, What did you study we both studied communication. That's where we met.
0: That's uh, where we met yeah. A class. Yeah, mm-hmm. it was
2: an advertising class.
0: Wow, really nice. Yeah.
2: So stayed full force throughout BYU Idaho. Um, I think about a year after graduating, I got married in the temple. Whoa. Yeah, and then uh, left the church about a month after that.
0: Hmm, that'll do it to you every time. It really does. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, we're going we got to get to that part. But Tanner, did you go on a mission? I did. All right, so how did that come about? Where did you go? So I served in Brazil, João
4: Pessoa Mission. It's Whoa. like the easternmost tip of the Western Hemisphere. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, uh, when I first got my call, I was a little bit disappointed because I was like, oh, everybody goes to Brazil. I don't want to have to learn a language. I just want to speak in my native tongue so I can, you know, yeah. preach with power and all that. And uh, I got to the uh, Brazil MTC, and uh and stayed there for nine weeks and that was probably the spiritual highlight of my mission partly because the way the dynamic is set up is to make you feel so bad and to put you in such constraining uh, circumstances that then it elevates your emotional response and any release is like
3: this is the best. <laughs>
4: so uh, that was kind of my experience with that it was like really dramatic shifts in emotion and uh and yeah, so then I went out to the mission field and was supremely disappointed by the experience. Like right off the bat I thought this is not what I spent my whole life preparing for. Because I was in it for the for the love, yeah, for the yeah. for the real thing, to yeah. preach with the tongue of angels and to do miracles and to be these noble pure emissaries of God. Yeah. And what I saw was just the sales team and not just like a sales team, but the worst kind, you know, worse than your Provo Vivent salesman approach, you know, just total, <laughs> like, uh, you know, they'd go up to kids, and hey, if, do you want to play soccer in our, in our football field? Well, if you do, you've got to take a little bath in our church first, oh, yeah, and man. go get your parents to sign this paper so you can do it, just the worst. And, uh, you know, they, we were sitting in a meeting with all these missionaries, and they say to me, uh, they, they asked the question, how do we get people to, uh, you know, commit to baptism, right off the bat, and I said, you know, we invite the Holy Ghost, and they said, the Holy Ghost is for goleros, and golero, a goalie, is someone who blocks people from making goals, from scoring. So anyone who blocks someone from getting baptized is a golero, Whoa. and the spirit was for goleros. Because if you're trying to touch people's hearts, that's going to take forever. Right, 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 right. <laughs> there's got to be faster ways to baptize more people, because there's, yeah, there was like, you know, a social... Uh, uh, reward for baptizing more people you'd get your name in the mission newsletter and be called to you know a part of the mission hierarchy and so there's incentive to perform well and so you see all these people who are breaking the rules and things who are ascending the hierarchy and the people who are you know trying to do it the right way yeah. are you know kind of there were times where we'd be lambasted for you know you surely you must be doing something wrong or you'd yeah. be baptizing more people yeah yeah. and so I, I just got so depressed Off Uh the bat, and I I prayed, Lord, let me get hit by a bus so that I can go home with honor, you know, Uh because this sucks. And then I said, you know, eventually, was like, well, you know, this is my my call to serve. This is my, you know, Gethsemane or whatever. I can do it the Lord's way, even if I have to do it alone, you know. Totally uh, eating it up that way, and and eventually, it became easier to cope with. And I had an exchange, a change of mission presidents that made it that had a little more agreeable tone and. Um, and ended up finishing it, you know, feeling good about the mission. Mm. You stuck yeah, it out.
0: I did. They yeah. didn't beat you down. Not quite. Any leadership roles?
4: <laughs> yeah, I ended the mission as AP, so. That's, that's amazing. <laughs> the, the
0: Mormon success story. Wow. <laughs> Usually you get ostracized if you start off questioning you. Know? Yeah. yeah so Thankfully I didn't let the questioning go too far. Got it. Was that Portuguese yep. speaking? Okay. Yeah. So uh, you get off the mission honorably hmm you come home how were the companions
4: um all I had like 25 companions like quite a few and all got along super great there were about four that probably hated my guts yeah yeah, um, yeah, those. yeah, yeah. <laughs> all from the same place too wow. about, yeah uh, anyway okay. yeah good good companions overall uh, i really liked working with the different missionaries and things so um. yeah I got along with most people
0: prior to uh, the mission did you do any college at Idaho
4: Not at Idaho, I did in Arizona, Arizona. and yeah, even though it was, they call it BYU Arizona, I went Mm. to Eastern Arizona College, used to be a church-owned school, and still a very predominant culture there, and yeah, very Mormon in my activity there. I could, geez, get a degree in Mormon studies just from like institute classes and things, but.
0: So after the mission, you went to BYU Idaho, Mm -hmm. you studied communications, and you, were you further ahead? Uh.
2: By uh, one semester. I yeah. see because yeah. of
0: the difference in age. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. And so then what happens? You're going to school together. You see a beautiful uh, girl in your class. You uh, see a handsome I
4: say, woman. I say, nice shoes. She says, thanks, and looks away. And I'm like, well, is
3: that <laughs> how it was?
2: Which, in my culture, is a very friendly response, but to Tana was rude and offish. Oh,
0: yeah, yeah. Interesting. Yeah,
4: people, mm. you do have a, like a more.
2: Yeah. Kind of a melancholy vibe,
0: generally. Nice. How did you become friends?
4: So we were in an advertising class, and what we all had to give a presentation. And I decided it would be fun if we kind of played a joke on the teacher. And so I passed along a note that said, everyone has to use this specific word, I forget what the word was, in their presentation. And kind of an obscure, funny word. Mm. And uh, so everyone's going along and, you know, using it until the teacher notices. And Sam thought that was kind of funny.
2: Oh, yeah. So
4: so then you offered me a job.
2: <laughs> yeah. I was uh, the head of the... Um, BYUI has an advertising agency um, like run by students. And I was the head of the copywriting department at the time. And I Tanner's classwork was always incredible. Mm. Um, he's amazing at graphic design, copywriting, all of it, honestly. But I was like, you have to join my team. And he did. Wow. Yeah.
4: So then we started working together. And then in the class, we had an assignment to do some video thing. So we started making... YouTube videos together. Yeah,
2: we were in another yeah. class together, and we had to spend like something like ten hours a week working on a social media project. So we started a YouTube channel and just made and what silly was that videos. Um, I think it's called How to. Oh, How to College. How to College. Yeah. How to yeah. College.
3: Yeah.
0: So you've been creative from the get go. Yeah.
2: Yeah.
0: As a team. Mm-hmm. Uh, when did the unraveling begin and it didn't have to start when you met I mean we want the facts but when did it begin in your mind what were the first inklings something's not right with what all is not well in Zion (laughs) Uh, I think mine started a little
4: earlier Um, I had a roommate who was a convert who was black and he approached me and said hey listen I know you like studying church history can you tell me more about the blacks and the priesthood thing? And I said, yeah, I'll do some research for you, which was a huge mistake in Mormon terms. Because uh, uh, I, as I started digging deeply, I started seeing a pattern of, ooh, that was not a good thing to say or to do, you know, church policy-wise. And, and so that kind of was the beginning of a, of a questioning thing because, you know, I start thinking, wow, if the church leaders were so wrong about this issue, what could they be wrong about now? Mm-hmm. You know, if they could say such terrible, horrific, racist things, mm-hmm. who's to say that what they're saying about, you know, the LGBT community mm-hmm. should be, you know, taken as revelation from God? Mm-hmm. So that started me. I had another friend ask me about polygamy, another convert friend too, and, you know, I was like, okay, I guess I'll research this too. So and you didn't know any of the facts about it really? Not really. Mm-hmm. Even though if you would have asked me, I would have said, oh, yes, I'm very well acquainted with all the anti-Mormon arguments. <laughs> yeah. I've read a Bible tract or two. <laughs> and uh, so that that kind of started it. And then from there, it was just kind of a, a, a nosedive. Wow. <laughs> and uh, yeah, and started a kind of a two or three-year journey. Out. And this is around the time we became friends. So mm-hmm. as a result, S- Samantha and I, we, we weren't just you know classmates we also had like a you know something of a spiritual connection i feel like very early on we felt like we had the same kind of ideals and perspective and um you know we used to get together and volunteer at the nursing home and things like that (laughs) together and Mm. and and so like our spiritual perspective was an important part of our relationship Mm. so we'd talk gospel and talk church Mm. and and as we're talking you know she'd she'd say things and i'd say well turns out there's this you know thing we didn't know about and Always trying to have a faithful perspective. I, I was not about to relinquish my faith or anything. Um, everything I did was because I thought, this is my test. This is what God has put me on earth to do, is to sort through all this stuff so that I can help other people through this faith crisis. Mm-hmm. So we had talked back and forth. and
2: Yeah, this was more after college. While we were in college, I think, at least outwardly to me, you were, we were both just very orthodox. Yeah. Um, hmm. We were definitely we bonded because we were so obsessed with the gospel. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, kind of had like a sibling energy from the get-go. Mm-hmm. Which, yeah, twins.
0: twins. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I see it in spirit. Ah, uh, yes. <laughs> uh, so uh, there was there was no. Uh, you guys were really committed in college. There was no partying on the side. There's none none of this thing that <laughs> I wish. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so I'm just have to say that because you know the audience who are LDS was well, you know they were secretly you know doing. Oh this yeah, never watch porn, yeah.
4: anything. Yeah, like, just very. Straight up. I was a uh, executive secretary in the state. Wow, which was obscene for a college kid with two jobs and a full course. Right, thing, but. You know, and
2: I mean, sometimes we would break curfew because um, Tanner would come over to give me a blessing at midnight because yeah, a boy had broken up with me. <laughs> <laughs>
0: you got us Mormons. We broke the honor <laughs> You code broke curfew. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. So after college, did any of his question you would talk, and then he threw some things. Did any of that sink in, or did you have the Teflon shield up? Oh, Tanner, that's um. True. So
2: Tanner, Tanner's kind of he started talking to me about this stuff when we were interns at Desert Book after we graduated. Um, and yeah, it definitely affected me. Um, Tanner, as we know, is so articulate, so intelligent that he would talk to me about this stuff and it wasn't, and I also knew Tanner so intimately that I knew, um, what a like how faithful he was and, and where his heart was. So I couldn't brush any of it off as, you know, Tanner's deluded or any of this stuff. Although, you know, there was some cognitive dissonance where I sort of tried to do that, but yeah, he kind of, I, he gave me a I guess like a fraction of what he was going through he would share yeah. with me. I maybe didn't know the extent of it under the surface. And what was
4: kind of nice is that, you know, I'd been so indoctrinated that to like extract myself out of that paradigm took so much mental labor, whereas Samantha wasn't raised with that. Yeah. So once the pieces started coming in done, she was like, forget it. Like, sure. I don't. And not to say that yeah. that was an easy process or a short process, just that you did have an advantage in that regard.
2: For sure, yeah. It was only about a five month process total for me. Mm -hmm. Um, Again, just because less layers of conditioning, less inoculation, Mm -hmm. Um, yeah.
0: So uh, jumping ahead just a bit, do you find yourself completely out, mind, heart, everything out of Mormonism? Or are there some vestiges that still crop up and you suddenly think, do I still believe that? Right now? Yeah.
2: Oh, there are no. There uh, are none. no <laughs> vestiges. How about you? I mean, there's
4: like, you know, little gems here and there that come back and I yeah. <laughs> Not quite. <laughs> you know, just little things but that aren't uh exclusive to Mormonism, you know, things being honest and you know things like that that's yeah. they taught me but it's not they don't own it. Got it.
0: So what's with Deseret Book? You guys graduated from college, and then what? You both worked at Deseret Book? Yeah. We did, yeah. <laughs> wow, well, how Where that we happen? tried to match every day. I, we did. <laughs> where? Downtown Salt yeah, Lake? Yeah, yeah, yeah. The, and what did you do for them?
2: We were social media interns. Wow. Yeah.
4: So at that time, uh, my faith crisis was in full bloom, so I was, you know, I'd wake up in the morning and start listening to podcasts about church history. That's when I actually listened to your episode of mormon stories and was really touched by that it was around you know like i said christ was such an important part of my mormon experience Mm -hmm. and i remember at various stages in that thinking that the scripture when mary finds the empty tomb or and she says uh uh they've taken my my lord and i know not where they've lain and that's how i felt is like what have they done with jesus like what all these these true delicious good principles are never at play when they matter in the church is what I felt like. Mm-hmm. And uh, so your interview was another one where probably one of the first times where I, I was like, oh, my God, there's good people who leave the church and who
0: are just as sincere as me. Oh, no, <laughs> what does this mean? <laughs> uh, I'm glad I could contribute to your crisis. Yes, thank <laughs> you so much. <laughs> so, uh, Deseret, how long were you, did you stay there at the same amount of time too? I
2: think you were there a month. Longer, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. How would you like yeah. it? Yeah. Um, It was an interesting time to be there because of the faith crisis stuff. So a big part of our faith crisis for both of us was focusing more on Jesus and realizing, um, you know, just the juxtaposition between the church claiming to be all about him and then just these practices, policies, whatever, that that didn't align with that. Mm. Um, So working at Deseret Book kind of highlighted a lot of that stuff to us because it it showed us how much, well, Deseret Book is, you know, a company of the church and everything just operates so much like a business. I remember there'll be things like um, they wanted us to come in on Sunday for general conference weekend. And I remember wrestling with that because I thought, well, there's other arms of the church that are tweeting out quotes from apostles and stuff. Like the only reason Deseret Book is doing it is to help their bottom line. You know, the, the church itself is tweeting from their Twitter account What's going on at conference? So there's no need for anyone at Desert Book to be working on a Sunday,
4: except to sell. Except to sell, yeah.
2: And so we started seeing that stuff um, and weren't okay with it. Wow.
4: Yeah. Meanwhile, we're just, you know, I I think the church's money issues really came to the forefront of our. Yeah. Yeah. I think working opposite
2: City Creek every day was. Yeah. yeah.
4: So you were (laughs) right down there.
3: Yeah. Wow.
4: Just and just seeing more and more. Wow. This is really just a
0: business. Yeah. Yeah. You probably got to taste that on the mission with the... Yes,
4: exactly, exactly.
0: This stuff rolls in us and grows. So uh, what was the final point? When did you say, in your mind, this thing is not true. I am done with it.
4: So uh, after we left Desert Book, you, you moved to Logan, Utah for a job. And then I, out of the blue, got a job in Logan. <laughs> yeah,
2: out of the blue. <laughs> yeah,
4: yeah.
0: Just out of co- you guys aren't married, right? No, we just, are not. <laughs> just platonic friends. Platonic <laughs> friends? Yeah. It's fascinating. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you have, what, great friends? Actual Gemini's in the flesh. Wow! <laughs> wow. Yeah. Yeah. wow. Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's just great to see two people who love each other like that and, <laughs> and are friends and just have life that are moving that way. Yeah, it's yeah. cool. Yeah. So, Logan, Utah, you're up there. Was that when it Fell apart? Yeah, so uh, you can tell the story, I guess.
2: Um, Yeah, so I got, so this is a classic Mormon story, but I um, moved up there in October, I think, and got married in March. So um, a quick, quick situation. And
4: I was a witness at their wedding. (laughs)
2: And Tana was a witness in the temple at my wedding. um, Not a month before
4: leaving the church.
2: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, so before getting married, I'd been wrestling with these things, but was almost in a more faithful place than ever in terms of Jesus. Um, really start, we, we were in sort of a Denver snuffer phase where Tana more so than me, but um, I kind of aligned with that too, where I, you know, really believed that we could see Christ in this life. Um, and I remember in the sealing ceremony, the sealer said something about that. And that to me was like confirmation. Um, and I was happy he said that. But yeah, I got married, had been going through this faith crisis stuff before getting married, but didn't, um, I guess the only thing was that I didn't necessarily believe that the church leaders at that time were as inspired as they claimed. But I felt still temple worthy because I thought, well, I still sustain them in that I still support them, I pray for them, you know, all this stuff. so, even though I felt like the church had kind of gone astray a bit, still felt faithful enough. You know, there's some cognitive dissonance. So, got married and then. Um,
0: Returned missionary. Pardon? Returned missionary. How did you meet him? Yeah,
2: he was a return missionary. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah and left the church a month later. Well, Tana left a few weeks before me. Um, maybe I'm getting the timeline a bit off, but it yeah. was within a couple of months of getting married. Um, But Tanner left before me, and when he left, it was like, um, oh, it was like a punch in the stomach because I knew that Tanner, more than anyone, had truly tried to maintain faith in this thing. And he, you know, he spent hours and hours a day praying, reading scriptures. He did everything you're supposed to do. Um, And he'd been sort of um, not an authority, but like, I. I talked to him a lot about this stuff because you know I wasn't spending six hours a day reading scriptures and he was I'm putting in my like 20 minutes Um, so he he was really diving deep into all this stuff really working hard for answers Um, and I was yeah trying to do trying not to do that too much because the Mormonism almost teaches against that because they say you know don't focus too much on the negative so I just tried to do like the, the mainstream Mormon thing but it just wasn't working and when I found out that Tanner left and essentially was an atheist I something in me knew like if Tanner can't do it then it's it's probably not true and I can't do it either because I was kind of still while going through this faith crisis you're hoping that you're gonna get this answer this um, relief eventually um, and it's just gonna make your faith stronger and that obviously wasn't coming so realizing that Tanner couldn't get that and knowing that he hadn't done anything wrong he, his heart was fully devoted to this thing Um, Yeah, it was almost like a ticking time bomb at that point and I knew it wasn't going to be possible deep down, but had just got married so felt this weird sort of, yeah, it was a painful few weeks where before I actually decided within myself to leave. Um, Yeah, and even though I hadn't been raised in the church, it still was incredibly traumatic um, because this was my entire worldview and for anyone to have their worldview shatter like that is traumatic.
0: Did it end your marriage?
2: It didn't end my marriage. My husband at the time had been... um, So I kind of think of it as like, Tana was sort of here in his faith crisis. I was always like one step behind him. And then my husband was always a couple steps behind me because I was telling him stuff. Mm. Um, So he left the church too after about a week of Mm. me leaving, just after we were able to talk it out. Um, I'm pretty persuasive. (laughs) (laughs) And... uh, yeah, and adamant but it didn't end our marriage but we got divorced like two and a half years later okay yeah
0: and then uh so you uh you dropped the bomb first yeah i was
4: watching it- a uh she recommended the documentary scientology mm-hmm. in the prison of oh, belief, yeah, oh yeah that's great is that what it's called yeah uh going clear yeah scientology okay. in the prison of belief and uh as i'm sitting there watching that i'm seeing all the parallels between joseph smith and l ron hubbard you know there's both these treasure diggers uh prolific writers too mm-hmm. you know uh Quite creative in their own ways and brilliant in their own way um, who are obviously looking for a way to get rich and realize religion was the best way to do it and I don't want to make any final judgment on either of their character but can say like obviously did, you know, propagated things that weren't true and their organizations uh, now also have a lot of parallels in the way that they treat uh, outsiders, the way they treat people who leave particularly. And as I'm watching the stories of these people who have left Scientology and realizing that they were just as sincere as I was and you know they loved it and felt it just as much as I did and they eventually had to just realize through this like slow whittling down of their faith that it wasn't true and so as I'm sitting there I I think to myself wow if if I was in a cult would I want to know it and it just kind of like that awareness just settled on me that's like I am in a cult. Wow! So I, closed, you know, got on my laptop the minute it ended, and emailed my bishop and said I need to be released. I can't do this anymore. And then that last, that next Sunday was my last. They had a lesson about, uh, and the teacher stands up and says, um, "We all know people who have left the church because they want to. They just want to sin. sin." And I said, "Bullshit!" And I just left. Wow. Left,
0: and that was it. And wow. yeah. Uh we're going to be taking a 5 minute break at 9 p.m. We'll continue to stream live so stay tuned for part 2. Uh I just wanted to throw that in there. Uh so you sent a letter to the bishop, an email. Mm-hmm. Did that get the ball rolling to get the name off or did they hold a court or anything like that? No, he wanted to meet with me and he was a
3: really
4: nice, humble guy and we chatted a bit, you know, he wanted to know some of some of the things I was grappling with though not in great detail lest he you know catch the of illness uh, but it, it was obviously clear that I had done a lot more research than he had so he kind of was like well okay if you must leave <laughs> kinda, all right bye so he left and and I was you know in a new singles ward in the in a student ward in the summer so there was like no one there I hadn't really integrated super well into the ward didn't know a lot of people so I kind of just it, it wasn't wasn't that big of a hubbub about me leaving, at least not on the local level. Once I came out on Facebook and said, I'm not a member of the church anymore, that was kind of where every, I mean, that was probably preliminary to what we're doing now because, uh, you know, there was a lot of people who we had known in school and in various uh, positions on the mission and things who were all of a sudden, for the first time, hearing from someone they, they respected who left the church and I tried to do it in you know the most loving compassionate way possible because in the beginning you're like uh, you know the church was so good to me and I don't wish them ill but but I have to leave and then you once you realize like how much they fucked you up you're like wait a minute let's burn this motherfucker down and then hopefully you get to a place where you're like namaste whatever but.
0: <laughs> so how about mom and dad
4: um yeah i so after I left the church i I struggled with how I was going to bring that up to them, and it got to the point where I was so overwhelmed with anxiety about it that I could hardly perform at my job. I was having panic attacks at work, and finally one day I'm just like dry heaving in my car and i said i have to I have to tell them so I call my mom and i say uh um i I asked her, Would you love me no matter what' She goes, what, are you, gay? <laughs> I was like, that's a whole other conversation. <laughs> um, uh, she, and then I said, well, I'm leaving. I have, I can't be a Mormon anymore, is what I said to her. And she said, oh, and I'm, you know, weeping and and gasping for air. And and she said, you know, we love you because you're Tanner, or not because you're a member of the church. and Great mom. And that, yeah, yeah, I think so. And um, reiterated that you know, some of those values that I I got growing up, again, weren't exclusive to Mormonism. It wasn't about being a Mormon. It was about just being a good person. Mm -hmm. And so I was grateful for that example. And to this day, um, even though it's hard to be, it is hard to be like on different pages as your family, especially going from kind of being like the golden child Mm -hmm. to, you know, being the black sheep, (laughs) Mm -hmm. uh, has been, has been tough. And it's not without its, Tension and a little bit of friction, but overall, I think we both have the attitude of mutual respect. And I'm not going to try to persuade you. You don't try to persuade me. Let's just meet in the middle, nice. and yeah.
0: That's good. You're able to do that. Is that with siblings too?
4: Yeah, yeah. That's really and my good. siblings are, you know, super cool too. I think the younger generations really are getting, they have to get yeah. <laughs> better and better at dealing with people who leave because more and more people are leaving. <laughs> they
0: really do. Samantha, how about your parents? Did they? Were they happy that you left, perhaps? Oh, yeah.
2: They were quite chuffed. <laughs> <laughs> well,
0: now we can get a drink when you come home. <laughs> yeah,
2: honestly. My mom was like, does this mean you'll be drinking coffee now? And I was like, well, I still hate coffee, but...
0: Uh-huh. So, and then just, uh, I'm just curious, uh, relationship with mom is closest or dad too, is it?
2: Um, both. Like, nah, I'm not close with either of them, per se. I'm closer with my mom. Mm-hmm. Um, pretty good relationships with them both. But they're not... Um yeah our lives aren't super intertwined
0: yeah so it was just okay you've done it yeah let's have a yeah. drink perhaps yeah. all right great so uh you've both left now mm-hmm. and something on youtube your youtube you've done some youtube videos but it was facebook where you started to get some kickback get the conversation conversation going, going, is, really going. is really where it and then what happened from there between the two of you and how did just ex- take us up to the point where you decided on the name and what you were gonna do, and what was your first production and, and, and release to the world.
4: We should probably back up a little yeah. bit.
0: Yeah, back up.
2: So we were kind of Mormon bloggers. I'd, well, yeah, we were Mormon <laughs> bloggers prior to leaving the church. I had this site with a friend of mine called Millennial Mormons, um, which at the time blew up because there, there weren't a lot of people doing what we were doing. It was terrible content looking back, but we were kind of the only faithful Mormons that also had a sense of humor and would write satire mm. and I remember some faithful members of the church would sort of think we were irreverent for writing satire but it was all super um, so tame <laughs> so 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 tame uh. yeah um, and our whole thing was like you know your grandpa's gospel now with hashtags uh. um, so we were trying to make Mormonism cool <laughs> <Failure>. <laughs> um, <laughs> and uh, yeah so me and Tana kind of just sort of that transferred all of the energy we put into that into um well you wrote a poem first didn't you
4: yeah so i was was processing that whole experience and um was doing it in poetry and decided nah, maybe someone would like to hear this so Mm. set up an iphone and our friend recorded it and uh published it and it it got pretty big just kind of right off the bat
2: yeah I think, I don't remember the exact timing, but because we met John DeLynn...
4: Yeah, so we're in Logan, where John used mm-hmm. to live, and he was hosting a, uh, what was it, like a support group yeah. for people transitioning out of faith, um, all ex-Mormons, I, I believe, and so we're like, oh, let's go meet this John DeLynn guy, mm-hmm. and we're, that sounds perfect for us, so we went and uh, we told him that we were had done Mormon blogging and things, and... He was like, oh, that's so cool. we got to have you on the show. And, uh,
2: <laughs> oh, yeah. I think some people in, on Reddit, when they found out that we left, were tagging John DeLynn, saying, you have to interview them. Because X mormon Reddit hated Millennial Mormons, because mm. we were the worst.
4: Um, <laughs> and it was actually John who gave us our name. Um, yeah. I knew I wanted to do something with Zelf. It was just like, mm. it's a, just a, such a fun, short, yeah. memorable name. Yeah. I, and such a good story that just totally undermines yeah. the Book of Mormon narrative. So, uh I was like, I want to do something with Zelf, so we go to John, we we go to John and we say, John, we want to do you know, we want to do something with Zelf. What should we do? What rhymes with with Zelf? And he goes, Shelf. <laughs> Zelf on the <laughs> shelf. And so we're like, All right, that's it. I don't want to hear any more names. That's it. Yeah.
3: Uh, so he kind
2: of gave us a boost. He um, shared our stuff from the beginning. So um, nice. Yeah. You know, put again. Us on the map. Yeah, he did, and it, it was. Uh, it feels weird that I. Uh, kind of got in early with Millennial Mormons and with this, but again, it was like, no one was really talking about ex-Mormonism in a fun way. <laughs> I mean, I'm sure people were, but um, not that we had really seen. So there was people like John DeLynn doing this incredible work. Um, and I think we just kind of wanted to do more lighthearted stuff because leaving the church can be so depressing. And, and so much of it is so serious and traumatic. Um, and we are playful people and kind of wanted to bring that to our content, so.
4: And, and we were, you know, deeply hurt, yeah really. You know how it goes. It's traumatizing. And went through a phase of just, like, you know, a sense of total nihilism and depression. And, and I think comedy, you know, addressing these issues in a sort of lighthearted, fun way was cathartic for us. Mm-hmm. And, and I think it resonated with people, too, because it is, you know, you can only sit through so many six-hour Mormon stories <laughs> and just, oh, my
0: God, this is terrible before you
4: need a... Uh, coffee and a,
0: a laugh. <laughs> yeah. So, did the comedy over time, I don't know your stuff that well, did it morph into some uh, sardonic, sarcastic, maybe did it get more mean? Did it get more angry? I don't know, but I think mean. it's got less mean. Less yeah. mean? It's,
2: it's, I don't it, know that it's ever been mean. Yeah,
4: we try not to be mean. It has been very sacrilegious.
2: <laughs> yeah. yeah. I think, um, I mean, definitely when we first left the church, we were more angry and. You know things like we would um, maybe be more inclined to sort of make these statements about Mormons that when you think about the fact that actual Mormons we knew fell into the category they were kind of offensive or I don't know I think we've just softened the way that we talk about it as we've realized more and more that everyone's just the product of their experiences and the things that have happened to them and and even the leaders of Mormonism are Um, the products of their genetics and experiences and it's, you know, they're sort of victims of this thing too. They've been conditioned to be just that. So, um, yeah, our anger's kind of completely gone over the years. And, you know,
4: it spikes up every once in a while living in Utah and, you know, having a state that's run by the church and, you know, constantly having your values and opinions and ideas marginalized uh, simply because you don't subscribe to this demonstrably false men (laughs) Mm -hmm. is sort of can irk the best of us at times and and you know with all that's coming out about uh, sex abuse scandals and things in the church and Mm -hmm. uh, there's a sense of righteous indignation that pops up every once in a while but I'd say overall that Mm -hmm. like personal embitterment
0: has healed that's good to hear yeah so uh, we're gonna wrap it up and uh, we're gonna have a check my church spot at our break we're gonna take a five-minute break and come back with uh, Samantha and Tanner, but uh, I'm gonna show my ignorance here. I really don't know uh, how to characterize millennials uh, (laughs) relative to old fogies like me and other generations before, and even generations uh, generations that's come up since. What, how do you (laughs) categorize the millennial generation. Here's the first one. We rule. don't
2: like categories. <laughs> we <laughs> you don't, don't like, like that to be categorized. To be
0: existentialist. Yeah. yeah. You refer to to defined. Yeah. I see. So is mm. that the primary? Is that the thrust of a millennial? Don't box us in. I'd say.
4: Uh, <laughs> I'd say a good indicator is if they were born between what is it, 1985 and 2000, <laughs> and that's about as as specific that's as you can get. Yeah.
5: You're not
0: going to give me any sort of. Uh, <laughs> Zeitgeist or approach to life. (laughs) Well, you know, we're quite postmodern and leftist leaning, but only because we're entering a wider global mentality and trying to. Uh, And before we go to the break, I'm going to throw one hot button question out at you both uh, in your opinion, because this is another millennial I recently met. We had him on the show. Tell me your thoughts on Quake L.
2: Um... (laughs) you know he's trying his best he's living his truth i guess we i don't know we've heard a lot of stories of the way that he'll treat people and kind of the way he's talked to us online and um yeah i don't
4: i haven't ever interacted with him, him really personally just like a couple things here and there so I guess I'll just decline to comment. <laughs> That's fine.
0: Yeah. Uh, I asked because he sort of represents the opposing force mm-hmm. uh, of of your age and your your uh, outlook, and his approach is so pro mm-hmm. restoration gospel, and it's just it's almost ironic. Quite orthodox, which yeah. is yeah. brave orthodox. in twenty nineteen. <laughs> yes. So it was fascinating. He
3: did.
2: Yeah. Yeah, oh, I'm I'm not sure that he. Um, kind of is our opposite in the sense that, generally when we interact with Mormons on social media, um, you know, like a lot of, a lot of Mormons don't like Quaku, don't like the way that he talks to people. Um, he's quite authoritarian in his approach, um, which I think generally doesn't resonate with millennial Mormons, or at least the ones that are on Twitter that I'm seeing. Um, so he's kind of a unique breed of, yeah, very orthodox.
4: I see. I'm zealous. Yeah, there's
2: something about being a convert that makes you very zealous. <laughs>
0: sure. Uh, and regarding Kwaku and his uh, <clears throat> orthodoxy and his zeal, and I guess, I guess he can be cantankerous with people, because um, uh, I've heard that from others, too. But um, know, what was I going to say? Uh, do you, um, is it important? in your minds to have manners, to be polite and kind to people when you engage with them on things that you're gonna absolutely differ with them about?
2: Yes, I think kind of no matter what we do, Mormons call us hateful because they have, you know, they believe that criticism of their religion is inherently hateful. Um, But we've, I mean, we've gone back and forth with people like Kwaku and I feel like we, generally try to stay respectful. We attack beliefs, not people. We generally do not use ad hominem attacks. Um, And we recognize that at the end of the day, everyone is the product of their experiences and life, people can only be what life has made them. And uh, yeah, so.
4: And you know, uh, he he had reached out to us about doing a debate And the more that we go on and experience our own personal healing and things, the more um, we see that, you know, we we had things that were so antagonistic or sacrilegious, blasphemous, you name it, as a way of expressing our grief and anger and things. But really, I'd say we've become more and more interested in extending the olive branch and trying to build a dialogue, um, because if you just come in swinging at somebody, they're not going to be interested in what you have to say. So when Quaker reached out about doing a debate, I said, what if we just sit down and just have a talk and, you know, as people, not like as a Mormon, as an, as an anti-Mormon, just like people have had two experiences, and let's compare and contrast and maybe be the means of kind of healing some of the tension between our two communities. Mm-hmm. And he was not interested in that. He wanted it to be a debate. And, yeah. <laughs> uh, Fascinating. Yeah, he recently made a, a video where he, he promised to donate $2,000 to an LGBT charity if we debated him, and I'm thinking... man if like donate or don't don't hold like (laughs) don't hold charity hostage as a way of provoking someone into debating you so you know if it was something like this where we could just sit down and just have a conversation i think it you know i i've never met a person who i wasn't able to find something about them that i liked and it's not to say that those people aren't out there but i haven't because you know if you just look at someone as just a person Mm -hmm. it's not hard and so we're trying to focus more and more on that like how do we just connect as people which is why art has come more into uh, what we do as a way of just reaching more people in a way that's not so like, hey, everything that you've been taught about life is false, here's
0: why, um, but something that can just touch them on an emotional level. Art's a great unifier. Uh, one last thing on the millennial side, so, and I don't mean to belabor this topic, but it's interesting to me, if, and we're gonna go to the break next, uh, so stay tuned, five, five minute break, and then we're gonna come back, but uh, in your opinion, Between your approach and the influence you have on the people who are millennials and younger, and Kwaku's approach to people who are in the church and he's trying to, to, I'll say, trying or he is trying to be the the standard for the younger generation to follow. It's not to say who's going to win, but who's going to (laughs) win?
2: I don't think Orthodox religion is going to make it. Yeah.
4: I think we'll see more people like Kweku becoming more and more prominent in the church. I think there's going to be quite a lapse of time where the church gets more conservative and doubles down. Mm. Um, Meanwhile, I think the periphery of the church is going to become more and more progressive and that these old hard lines are going to become less and less relevant to them.
2: I also think a a big thing with millennials is we're very conscious of mental health. And I feel like a big part of our message is mental health and... As time has gone on, we, that's sort of what we're more passionate about almost than just Mormonism. And Mormonism is a tiny part of that, that we feel is harming people's mental health in all these ways. Mm-hmm. Um, but I feel like this sort of orthodox, authoritarian approach, or whatever you want to call it, that Quaku takes is not conducive to good mental health. Mm-hmm. And, you know, we're trying to teach these messages of tolerance and love and self-acceptance and recognizing that you're just what life has made you and and all this stuff. And that, like, there's a lot of friction between that message. And you know, you need to be better. And you know, mm. love is almost conditional and to a degree. Apostates will
3: be damned and thrust down to yeah, hell. And mm. like,
2: the. Yeah, and like Yeah, the way he authorizes ex Mormons, anti Mormons is so. I, I yeah, I just don't think people are going to be into that long term.
4: And it's easy for us to sit here and act like we've been, you know, oh, sure.
0: perfect this whole time, and we oh, surely yeah, have yeah, we've
2: yeah. <laughs> yeah. we've been angry. Oh yeah,
0: it's excellent. Really appreciate part one. Uh, come back and join us for part two in five minutes when we're going to watch one of their artistic expressions, which a good friend of ours plays a prominent role, and uh, we'll see that in just a minute. Okay, we're back. Welcome you guys in the studio. We're starting up part two, and uh, you know, uh, we ended sort of talking a little bit about art and so I think it's a great time to show. Uh, Seth, are we ready for that? Yeah. This is a, uh, why don't you introduce it? Tell us uh, a little bit about it and then we'll go to it.
4: Okay, um, geez, it's hard to know what to say without just diving too far deep into anything. Really? Um, it was a lyrical, I, I've done poetry, like I said, our, our, one of our first videos, if not our first video was a kind of a slam poem. And uh, this was an attempt at doing a lyrical poem, so adding some music and um, drawing from some personal life experiences as well as my overall perspective on you know, my relationship with the church, in some ways my relationship with God, and so on.
0: And uh, who did the music?
4: Um, I have a buddy down in uh, Provo who's a professional sound guy, so he wow. whipped one up for me. Wow. And did you shoot it? Yeah, I I have I have an old roommate who does videography. So he and I just tromped up into the mountains with our friend Larry here.
0: And am I allowed to say his name? Of course.
3: (laughs) He says, "How to do on the internet."
0: (laughs) (laughs) All right. Well, let's take a look. And the name of it is High on a Mountain Top. Yeah. All
3: right. Tom. I
4: had a vision of horses and demons, Kitchy Mormon heaven dreaming. I woke up in the morning, drenched in sweat and screaming, Mother forgive me, Mother forgive me. I am a witness, I am a
3: witness. Who is a witness? Who is a witness? Mother forgive me. Whistleblower at my father's business, thistle sower showed me forgiveness. Judas the priest on the lips she kissed me, God the servant run on sentence with me. I am a witness, I am a witness. Father forgive him, father will kill him. Who is a witness? Was a witness. None were with me. Flipped against me. High the mountaintop, he watched me to the threshold of the temple. He brought me under the spreading chestnut tree. upon me. Nobody saw me. Nobody stopped me. This is the place that made my stomach ache. Stakes raised in a Motel ache It wasn't fake. It wasn't. flag unfurled on a mountaintop a rippling shock to my small town like shocker when my walls came down make it stop please make it stop i want to think somebody saw me i need to know somebody's watching i hate to hear somebody talking i need to feel somebody wash me i am a witness i am a witness who is a witness who is a witness who'll be a witness who'll be a witness i am a witness father forget me
0: fantastic performance thank you yeah really great uh, love everything about it uh wanted to go back one thing quickly with samantha when you did you go through the temple the first time when you got married in logan
2: yeah
0: what was your uh response to that experience
2: um i'd been studying enough stuff by that point that um i was sort of prepared for it to be as culty as it was i think going through the faith crisis made me um I guess less scared of knowing stuff that maybe regular members feel that they shouldn't know. Um, I definitely didn't know everything that was gonna happen, but yeah, I I think my the first time I did it, it was like a mixed bag in terms of how I was feeling. Like there was a part of me that thought, this is, this is cold tea, I didn't feel what you would hope to feel and then another part of me felt this sort of sense of pride or I'm not sure, yeah, mixed. <laughs>
0: And then, how about, uh, Tana for you, of course, you were much more steeped. You went on the mission. It was preparatory. You've been groomed for this. Mm-hmm. Did you find the thing inspiring? And
4: uh, Almost. <laughs> Even for me, like, you know, I had prepared a ton, read Boyd K. Packer's book on the Holy Temple or whatever, and gone to all the preparation classes, and and still, I, I went in trying to expect the worst, because everyone tries to, they try to over Play the weirdness of it So that you get there And you're like Oh it wasn't that weird (laughs) They're like You know what You're gonna wrestle A goat in there And then you don't And you're like Okay it's not that much Of a cult (laughs) All we did was Stand naked in front Of strangers (laughs) You know Um no, I, I went in fully expecting just the worst thing I could imagine, like standing naked in front of everybody and having to say my worst sins or something like that, and it wasn't that bad, and I think by the time I went through the veil and saw all my family there, all that, inter- again, that like pressure and release was very much triggered, so I you know, I walked through and see them and, and felt a lot of love and happy to be there, and, and I, you know, developed... Uh, an appreciation you could say for the temple and but then the more my faith crisis went on the less and less I felt good there Um, because you know I'm I'm like you know setting about the Masonic elements and and you know some of the misogyny that was part of the uh, experience and reading old accounts of the temple and realizing how that's changed contrary to various doctrines and all the hang-ups with that It got to a point where I remember sitting there just being like I can't be in here this is just too weird Um, and then I think after that probably the next time I went was with for her wedding. Wow.
0: So when you came to your uh, when the faith crisis was consummated and it was done (laughs) uh, you take the garments off did you feel strange did you feel like I'm naked did you feel wrong (laughs) unprotected?
4: Uh, not, not, too, not too bad. The, the interesting thing, uh, what I'm grateful for is that because my research was so thorough, and it got to a point where it wasn't like, it wasn't like okay, I think I'm doing the right thing. It got to the point where I was like, f- truly physically incapable of believing in Mormonism. You could give me a million dollars, and it wouldn't change my mind because I, I knew too much. And with that kind of awareness, it, I, I, it felt like the guilt or awkwardness of those types of things wasn't really a view, though I know that that happens to people it's I'm not you know um but yeah I didn't didn't feel too much like shame or weirdness about it I was ready to move on Uh (laughs) yeah
0: so uh just out of curiosity um uh what do you how do you subscribe the true believing mormon how, what do you, What is going on in their mind? Because we live in a day and age when you can find out anything mm-hmm. if you really want to. Do you think that they're kind of saying, you know, see no evil, hear no evil, speak no evil, I just don't want to know? Do you think it's that? Or do you think that there are people who have studied all of it and they're still true believers? I mean, what's going on in the mind of people?
2: I think it's just the same for people in all kinds of high demand religions, like the, we're emotional beings first and foremost. We're a lot less logical than we like to think. Um, and for people who have been, you know, the majority of Mormons were raised in it and they have been taught this thing since birth. Their brains have been shaped by Mormonism since birth. Um, you know, they made this lifelong commitment when they were eight. Everything, kind of like with Tanner, his whole Mormon experience was like almost inextricably linked with his family. So every experience they have of like familial love and all these things throughout their life is attached to Mormonism. Mm -hmm. So, you know, for them, they're ascribing, you know, everything that's so good and beautiful about life to them, it has a tie to Mormonism because that's how it's been their whole life. And those roots run really deep in the brain. They don't, um, you know, neurons that (laughs) fire together, wire together or whatever, um, that conditioning runs so deep. And that's why it is such a big deprogramming process for so many people leaving cults hiding among religions like Mormonism. Mm -hmm. Um, So I think it's it's not I think there are a lot of Mormons that know there's information out there that might trouble them and there's definitely an element of not looking at it and then I do think um, there are people who do kind of know possibly everything but I think you can know everything about the history of Mormonism but if you don't understand your own psychology and if you don't understand kind of the neuroscience behind religious conviction, you can keep believing in anything if there's enough of an emotional incentive to do so.
0: Got it. So then, how would you, having said all that, Samantha, what would you say, uh, how is Tanner? How are you? How am I different?
2: How are we different?
0: How, how did we get out?
2: I, I guess it's like the right combination of factors, you know, we'd had, I don't know. I mean, for me, the obvious answer is I didn't grow up with it, so didn't have that deep conditioning. So when I encountered that information, there was less to work through. Right. For Tanner, he cared so deeply about Mormonism for various reasons. It had been a, been a thing that he'd clung to throughout his life, so he cared enough to really investigate this stuff. I assume it was the same for you. I haven't listened to your interview.
4: I, I, from my observation, and I, I know that I have a limited perspective, and I'm not trying to generalize all Mormons, but from from what I've been able to tell in my experience, the, there's sort of a bell curve to, to interest in the church and that Mormonism works best for people who are kind of you know, just lukewarm mm-hmm. and uh, the ones who are you know, really firebrand in one direction are likely to get out. The ones who really care the most and who are out to be the, mm-hmm. the missionaries or whatever, those tend to, to leave because
0: yeah. the inform- it, eventually they'll find out. That's a really good insight, really good insights from both your parts. So I want I, this isn't word association, but I, I wanna throw some words at you and talk about these things. Cool. All right, so, uh, and there's no rhyme or reason to them, but I'm just gonna throw words out, and I just want you to tell me, you and, and I'm gonna pause, I'll say the word, I'll let you each think because you're two individuals, and then we'll hear your initial response, and, uh, uh, so uh, just give it to us what it is the first one uh, are you ready no rhyme or reason <laughs> cultural hall
2: sad weddings <laughs> <laughs>
0: sad weddings
4: that's fascinating uh, uh, <laughs> pubescent embarrassment <laughs> <I don't know. laughs> you know
0: there's uh, even all these years haven't been out and studied religion and, and done what I do I, I I still like the fact that they have them I just <laughs> I just think it's just ingenious they all smell the same <laughs> they they're 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 just this place where like you said. Prepubescent, you have the wedding there. Talk about the feelings attached <laughs> to the church, yeah. cultural the, hall—the
4: place where I played basketball. Now I'm meeting my eternal companion. Yeah,
0: exactly. It's just fascinating.
4: You know, there's a a, um, a Hari Krishna temple that's a con- here in Salt Lake. That's a converted LDS chapel. Oh. And the, every Wednesday night they host dances. Oh. So they've got it's like a you know your traditional cultural hall, but they've got murals of. Vishnu and Krishna and big statues of Krishna and all these hippies dancing in there. It's kind of a like uh, a yes. (laughs) All roads have led back. (laughs) How funny! That's really kind of funny to experience the cultural hall in a different context.
0: So uh, the next one that is on my list, but this is in order. So uh, church dances. Did you go to them? unfortunately
2: <laughs> i think i went to one <laughs> you went
0: to one they had them in england
2: yeah i i think i went to one church dance possibly two but the first time i went i was not baptized and i was wearing a shirt that had it was like a shoulder cut out so there was like uh-huh. a slit here and the young women's stake presidency told me i needed to change and i so i had a i was with a mormon friend and she had a t-shirt she gave me but Looking back on that, I'm surprised how well I took it. To wow. me, I, I must have had some kind of, um, something that made me okay with authority like that, because... the wow. Samantha,
0: I know now, would I never.
2: <laughs> I would be outraged, but at the time, I was like, okay, following the rules. Yeah, yeah,
0: it makes you feel kind of good. Yeah, I don't know. You're probably, your blouse was probably beautiful and everything, they have you put a T-shirt on, and that's more acceptable. Yeah. Amazing. And your experience of the dance is not so good?
4: Oh, I mean, it was fine, just awkward. I. I I liked to dance a lot and was probably more, I don't know, gregarious and flamboyant <laughs> in my dancing than anybody else. And mm-hmm. so I tried to make the best time of it I could. But they got really old pretty fast. <laughs> Same soundtrack every single time. And funny yeah I loved them yeah
0: just, in my generation they were just great hunting grounds for naive girls
3: that's exactly what it was
0: I'm sorry that's exactly what it was uh, as rude as that might be to, uh, to people who are more reasonable today uh, Book of Mormon how would you explain The Book of Mormon! You don't have to go through all the details, well, you know, he wrote it this and all, but Mm. just Book of Mormon, what do you think? Summary statement. The Book of Mormon.
2: Bible fan fiction is what people (laughs) say a lot, which seems accurate.
4: Um, I think like any narrative is sort of an archetypal representation of the cosmos of Joseph Smith's mind. Mm. Um, You see a lot of personal elements in it. A lot of the Bible in it, obviously. Um, yeah. Yeah. So I he, think I think it was written to address the issues that Christianity was facing in his day, according yeah. to his perspective. Yeah.
0: Do you think he uh, composed it then? Do you have an opinion on that, or do you think he had help, or do you think it was a team?
2: I think he, com- yeah, mostly composed it, or entirely.
4: Mm-hmm. I, yeah, I think he and Oliver probably mm. double timed it in some way. Got it. Like, um, I could see him being the primary uh, I- inspiration behind it and then Oliver helping refine it and uh, make it more palatable perhaps. Okay.
0: So now getting more into the mindset of you young kids, uh, purpose of life?
2: <sighs> That's a big question. <laughs> it is. I think to fully, I think there's a million subcategories within this, but um, I think kind of the best thing you can do in life is to understand the interconnectedness of all things in terms of um, yourself, others, the natural world.
4: Um, yeah. Um, it's. People often will say, like, Oh, if you're an atheist, then how do you find a purpose in life? And the answer is, Well, you choose one and people are like, Well, if you choose one, then it's not a purpose And it's like, Well, you're choosing one by belief, you know. We all we all choose or at least are drawn to the things that that give us a reason to wake up in the morning and um but yet at the same time you wouldn't ask like an animal in the wilderness what its purpose is its purpose is just to be and we as animals I think there is no inherent purpose other than to be and the more that we get comfortable just being what we are observing ourselves in our natural state the more we're equipped to act out in ways that um, reveal our interconnectedness with things which allow us to um, act in ways that ease relieve suffering uh, which is I would say our primary purpose as people and as a a media group, is to try to uh, relieve suffering, Um,
2: yeah. Yeah, and also promote vitality, I guess.
0: Yeah. Uh, So are you atheist, agnostics? Have you come to that after the faith crisis from Mormonism?
2: Yeah, I'd call myself an atheist. Mm -hmm.
4: I would call myself an atheist, but I'd also, in classic millennial hate to be categorized way, would also flip the coin completely and call myself a pantheist. Yeah. So yeah. I'd be comfortable with either of those
0: labels. Okay. Uh, which, in from the uh, from a, a Christian perspective, they are one and the same. Yeah. 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 <laughs> uh, but nevertheless, that's fine. So uh, with your atheism, and I'm sure I'm just discussing with you, you realize the difference between. Saying you're not sure, don't know, uh, believe there's a god, uh, or you haven't been convinced, versus there is no god, right. because one is sort of assuming an omniscience. So you know? I feel
2: like that's a a, a misconception almost about atheism, because atheism is just saying you don't have a belief in a god, you haven't witnessed sufficient evidence to believe that, um, and then I guess if you see agnostic as you know you kind of don't take a stance either way. They're not that different, but.
4: (laughs) Yeah, people tend to view it as like agnosticism is the middle of the spectrum between belief and disbelief, Mm -hmm. but that's not like quite how the word is. That's actually like an intersection like this where you have agnosticism. Yeah, which is saying I don't know versus I don't believe. So I'm an agnostic agnostic atheist. I don't know and I also
0: don't believe. So what kind of atheist are you?
2: What does that mean? In the
0: quadrant. (laughs) <laughs> of the, uh, are you a, there is no God, or I don't know if there is, I don't have a God that plays a role in my
2: life? Um, I think there's not sufficient evidence for me to believe that there's a God, and I'm also aware that humans um, evolved to believe in shared myths, which was religion, because it fostered cooperation between tribes. So religion has been really integral to our evolution as a species, um, and that's not nothing and I think that's where like the pantheism comes in for us recognizing that um, you know most religions are tapping into these sort of truths or these parts of the brain that we evolve to have you know we evolve to have spiritual experiences they are um, like we're still very big on spirituality in a secular context um, yeah I, I guess I don't believe that there's a god in the same way that I don't believe in anything that I haven't received evidence that there is
4: it's also hard to talk specifically about god because there's so many different conceptions of god so i can say i don't believe in that conception of god or that conception but you know you you take like a taoist or a hindu perspective of god where god is just everything that is this like swirling infinite uh you know infinite uh interactive matrix of some kind of which we find ourselves Mm -hmm. And so I I like to say I don't believe in a higher power, but I do believe in a wider power, that is to say, I see myself as an intersection of everything that it is, and by understanding how I fit into that integrated system, um, I'm able to draw power and intelligence from the whole thing so I can look out at the stars and recognize its attachment to my sense of identity, mm-hmm. and uh, other people as, as my sense of identity. And the more I can do that, the more I can act out of love and compassion.
0: I see. So, uh, just out of curiosity, it sounds like listening, specific, especially to you, Tanner, you've, you've, uh, said, you've given me some hints, more than Samantha has, at least to this, is that you s- tend to look at Eastern metaphysics as more viable than the Christian uh, idea of a... Uh, personal god and metaphysics is
4: is maybe even a stretch because while i i I think you'd be a fool to say everything that can be seen and felt right now with our tools is all that there is i mean people have been making that mistake forever and that's part of the problem of religious history is being dogmatic about what we think we know when there's so much more going on so i think um i i don't i try to not By any metaphysical explanation when there's a perfectly physical explanation for things. Um, So even as far as Eastern religion, it's not about the metaphysics as much as it is um, recognizing, like, the value of symbols. Um, So with Christ, for instance, um, Christ is the Western, at least, archetype of love embodied, of someone who's recognized that they are all that they are, existing as an intersectional human being, mm-hmm. um, and that's a, a little bit reductive and probably not as well as I'd like to explain it, but um, that awareness um, and, you know, someone we can look to as someone who was, you know, perfectly upright and and honest and and, and loving is, I'd say, the primary mm-hmm. element there. But, you know, other cultures have their mythic hero, whether that's Krishna or Vishnu or whoever you want to say, And that that archetype is just as important in their individual and collective psyche as Christ is to ours. And it's not important the name that you call it, whether you say Jesus or Yeshua or Krishna. What you're talking about is love embodied. Mm -hmm. And how do I better become love embodied? Um, So, yeah, it's not so much about the metaphysics as it is trying to. And maybe this comes into millennials that we're more, you know, we're raised on the Internet. And the Internet, I like to think of as the sort of neural network of the planet. It connects us. And so I can look at those mystic traditions and say, I have something in common. That that spiritual experience they've had, that Shakti or that reborn experience, that uh, Samadhi, whatever you want to call it, it's the same thing. Because when I read about... It and the effects that it's had on your life, I can say, I've experienced that too. And so rather than arguing who has the best language to describe it, mm-hmm. we can ease a lot of tension by saying, yes, 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 all this and
0: more. So <laughs> Matthew, you had something to say? Oh, maybe uh, you did. Um,
2: yeah, oh, I, thought you were I, so. I definitely think a lot of my spirituality now is quite Buddhist in nature. And I, I don't mean um, the religion of Buddhism. I know Buddhism takes a lot of different forms now, but... Um, from what I've studied of the Buddha's original teachings, you know, about non-attachment and kind of breaking free of these stories that we tell ourselves, because most of us go through life um, so attached to our own conditioning, so attached to these narratives that society has told us. And, and I think Jesus was a really enlightened thinker who understood that too. And I think what Jesus taught was very similar to what the Buddha taught, but in, you know, the language of his day and in his own context. Mm-hmm. Um, I tend to think Jesus was Perhaps not as theistic as people think, but um, regardless, I think he was an enlightened thinker who understood the value of ego death, you know, killing our attachment to these stories and these ideas we have about good and bad. And I think the reason he preached forgiveness so intensely was he understood that we're all just the products of our genetics and experiences. Um, you know, apparently when he hung on the cross, he said, Forgive them, Father, for they know not what they do. He really understood that, that people are just playing out these stories that they have inside their heads. And I think um, Buddhism, for me, or Buddhist principles, I guess, has been really valuable in helping me recognize my own conditioning, recognize the stories I'm telling myself, and kind of disidentify with them. So I'm not, um, yeah, I don't know if, if ego death is a is like a term people understand, but I personally believe that Jesus... Um, understood the value of that and kind of tried to teach that in the language of his day
0: it certainly should be something christians understand if mm-hmm. they don't they're missing a big piece of <laughs> yeah. the whole point point. and
4: yeah like you said both of them have to do with kind of a, a radical sense of acceptance mm-hmm. um, buddhas with just the systems of the world we find ourselves in christ with like on a moral level um, saying like i recognize that my capacity for darkness is just as deep as anybody else, and that had my genetic code found itself in the circumstances in which you were found in, mm-hmm. I could be doing just the same thing you were doing. If, if, my, if I was born as Hitler, I'd be Hitler. Got it. And I'm sorry for bringing Hitler into this, because right. that's just... You almost have to. You have to. Yeah. But, you know, it, you can... You, but once you realize that, that then you can offer that, that grace or that compassion, however you want to put it. And I, Yeah, Jesus and Buddha both mm-hmm. offer yeah. that.
0: I've heard, uh, uh, Samantha especially, you've mentioned something several times. You've mentioned it a couple times, uh, Tanner. Samantha, you have said we are a product of our genetics and our experience. Mm -hmm. Uh, My worldview is that is true uh, to a certain extent, but I am a great believer in us also being products of our choices, and I do believe in choice and free will. Your thoughts on free will?
2: Um, I don't believe free will exists in the way that people think it does. I think um, it's helpful to live as if free will exists because I obviously want to be improving, I want to be making moral choices and all those things and I want to encourage other people to do that. So it's not necessarily help. I I think there's ways it's really helpful to understand that free will doesn't exist. Like it can give you that kind of radical love and acceptance for others that, um, you know, Jesus, Buddha, whoever talked about. Um, But I think every choice we make, our brains are evaluating all the information it's ever received through our you know whatever neurology setup we've got going on in there um and then sort of making a choice based on what we've been conditioned to value and so i i i think even even when we make choices to a degree they are almost predetermined because it's our our brain is just scanning whatever information it has available to it um and even if it feels like you're choosing between one or the other Ultimately, like your brain's values are already there. It's it's a tough thing to talk about is free will. But is yeah, I, <laughs> I don't personally believe free will. Yeah, so they've exists done like that. Sorry. Yeah. Um.
4: Mm. They've done studies where they've shown, uh, when you when a brain is exposed to some stimulus, the part of the brain um, that is responding physically to it acts before the narr- narrative yeah. part of our brain. That is to say. Uh, we tend to think of our minds as dictating a story, when in fact it's just narrating Mm -hmm. what's happening. Mm -hmm. And our body is already acting, and then our body is telling us why it's doing Mm -hmm. what it's doing. Which is sort of a flip of how we traditionally see it. And that being said, though traditional classic free will may not exist, we do have a very real perception of free will. And in that sense, I I look at free will as sort of existing on a spectrum. And that the more you're able to become aware and gain intelligence or information, Mm -hmm. the more you're able to expand and play with your tool set. It's almost like we're an algorithm that learned it's an algorithm. And once you learn that and realize, oh, I'm just just a code written by somebody else, Mm -hmm. well, then I can go in and start adding to that code and giving myself the tools to then grow. Mm -hmm. So it's sort of... um, and maybe this is a sort of theological, uh, alchemical perspective, but in, in my sense, that's when I become a co-creator with, this, with creation, mm. because I am a product, I am a creation, but once I know that, I can start co-creating with it. Mm.
0: I have uh, absolutely no uh, resistance to that. I think that's fantastic.
4: It's very Buddhist of you. <laughs>
0: well, I, I actually thought it was very Christian of you.
4: Well, perfect. Yeah. Yeah. See, yeah. It's, not a, it's not about the language, right? right. Yeah. It's, it's very human and, of us. And I see that very much in the
0: Christian uh, narrative, but mm. um, a lot of Christians don't, unfortunately. Uh, so, uh, and by the way, the uh, we've had, I have some friends who are, uh, they would call themselves hardcore atheists. There is no God, you idiot. They've sat right here with us, and I like these guys, but they are, there is no free will. There is no free will. Yep. Everything is, de- it's determinism from the beginning. I have trouble with it simply because uh, I, I like your algorithm idea because you uh, having the genetics and pretty much the experience as your other siblings and, and your whole thing, uh, you brought in information that helped mitigate those factors. Yeah. And it helped you make some decisions that they haven't yet made. And so I, I, I tend to think that when people are open to bringing in information, the algorithm they can change mm-hmm. and I think it is a joint effort between what I believe is God and us I think it's a two way street and we are engaged in that together as lazy as you want to be is as lazy as you, he'll be mm-hmm. and as active you want to be is as interactive as he'll be but that's a society issue
4: that'll oh, go ahead I was going to say it is is—it is quite paradoxical yeah. my, my view and, and I'm, I'm comfortable with paradox I think as a Mormon I was taught that everything had to be black and white uh-huh. and as much as I can I've tried to, I've recognized how if you can be so incredibly wrong about every facet of life, yeah. well, then I'm not going to be so quick to draw hard, fast lines saying it's all this way or all nothing, you know? Right. Um, so I don't believe in free will and yet at the same time, I believe that a belief in free will is helpful and yeah. important and we'll, you know, because if we just say, ah, you're just the product and you don't have any choice and you just are what you are, well, that doesn't inspire anyone to right. to change and to make a difference and so it's sort of a, a helpful myth that mm-hmm. I think is important—the kind Sam talks about—that is good at unifying people and inspiring people. And frankly, we need that.
0: But let me ask you, just to follow up with that, Tanner. If what's the value of it if it inspires someone to change but they can't?
2: I think a big part. Of, sorry, oh, <laughs> direct that to Tanner. But I think a big part of our ability to change is believing that we can. Um, and you know, whether or not we believe we can will also be determined by whatever's happened to us in our lives. Um, and maybe to a degree, you know, our, our neuroplasticity, so maybe our age. But I, I think people are much more capable of change when they believe they can change. Because mm-hmm. for me to even, you know, for me to change, I have to first get the idea that I'm capable of change and, and discover, you know, have some kind of value system that makes me want to implement a certain change and perceive a positive result from doing that. Um, like even though I, you know, kind of am a determinist and all those Factors are dependent on all these things. Um, yeah, I think free will can be a valuable concept, if not like a, a true one. I see.
0: Our audience, there's a percentage of our audience, 56 percent, to tell you the truth. Uh, <laughs> they they sit in the wings, and they watch this this stuff and and they're highly critical of me for not pouncing on people with all the evangelical rhetoric that we pounce on people. With. They want to see it happen, and right now they want a bloodbath. They're, bath. they're <laughs> slitting their because they haven't seen one here. Um,
3: pounce?
0: Yeah. No, I don't. I don't. I don't yeah. believe in that because I think uh, the exchange of ideas we learn far. more And I think what people at home are are able to see firsthand from your own mouths what you represent, what you believe, what you're about. You're articulate, you're explaining yourselves, and you know, if that's not good enough, too bad. You know, <laughs> yeah, what, what is pouncing, yeah, <laughs> too bad. Uh, the next word is uh, sin. What, any thought on that word? Is there such a thing in your world?
2: Um, you talk, so I'm trying to remember something.
4: Uh, not, I mean, there's like, there are things a person ought not do, kill, steal, that sort of thing. Um, and I realize that that's sort of a construct that we have arrived to, that we say we do better as a species when we're not killing and stealing from each other. Um, th- that being said, I don't see it in the same way that you know we're all fallen or you know, we're all ch- choosing to be evil because again, it's it's sort of like we've said so many times. We are just the product. Yeah. We're products. We're creations, and um, you know it's not it's not your fault for being what you are, and acknowledging that allows a sense of forgiveness of self that then extends to other people and other things. Um, but yeah, as like sin as a concept, I don't really buy.
0: Uh, just to follow up before we go to Samantha, so. Uh, if Dahmer was alive and he came and he consumed your younger brother assuming you have one Mm -hmm. you Uh, would feel that is just a product of genetic makeup and experience and he had no choice and
4: yeah I mean a psychopathic brain doesn't even have like doesn't even have the hardware to feel empathy yeah so it's like to what extent can I judge someone who is literally incapable
0: of feeling love so are do you think in all practicality you are able to forgive uh, and forget the extreme of Dahmer, let's just say, um, I got mad at you right now and mm. punched you in the face. <laughs> Would you walk out of here and say, I love that guy, you know? Yeah, well that's,
4: that's the thing is um, it, we're talking concepts versus like my personal ability to cope. I, I think oftentimes we stress forgiveness in situations where I don't know if it's always necessary. Mm. Like um, I try to be a person who forgives, but not because I think it's the best ideal for like, i don't know this this big overarching concept it's for me it's you know taking the the bitterness out of my own heart because me being upset at you for something isn't going to hurt you it's just going to keep hurting me so the sooner i can let go of that the better but um yeah that doesn't reach into some like deep existential eternal uh uh, like quality of your soul Mm, got it
2: i think there's cognitively forgiving someone and emotionally forgiving someone and um, I feel like at this point and in, in most situations it's very easy for me to um, I guess cognitively forgive people but we're all human we will have to go through grieving processes when we're hurt um, but like Tana said forgiveness is ultimately for ourselves um, yeah
3: mm-hmm.
4: So, you know, in Mormonism, people, you know, that's the thing. You have to forgive your abuser, for instance, which to an abused person is just saying, you, like, I don't care about your experience. You just have to suck it up and take it. And when I, I think that's like using forgiveness as a, as a, you know, bully stick of some kind. Um, that being said, I, I think it's a, a great personal goal to have.
0: All right. Someone give... Uh, read a Claritin <laughs> um, is uh, sex what's the mindset of this millennial group on down I know the mindset of my generation we want as much of it as possible but <laughs> what is the mindset is is there is there value in uh, virginity is there value in in, in abstaining from sexual relationships uh, that are aberrant and, and uh, promiscuous Or does it matter?
2: I don't think we like virginity as a concept um, just because of the way it's been used historically. Um, I guess our generation is big into consent, so we're fine with people abstaining if that's what they want to do, and we're also fine with people um, doing whatever they want. Feels weird speaking on behalf of my generation. Yeah, yeah. Is, No millennial wants to speak for millennials. Right. <laughs> is, that, is that
0: verboten?
3: Yeah.
2: Yeah. I think consent is definitely the word for millennials consent. when it comes yes. to sex, and that is what distinguishes, you know, whether behavior is acceptable or not. It's Let just me just that. play
0: off that for a second, because you said we understand that um, uh, for stealing and murder we've just kind of generally understood that that's not beneficial to society. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I I raised three girls, and uh, so I read a number of books, uh, Reviving Ophelia and uh, Mm. uh, Return to Modesty by Sheldon and different books. And the studies show that, uh, forget religion, promiscuity in uh, women especially is quite damaging. I mean, the studies show that. So why is consent the... You guys seem pretty enlightened. Why would you just say consent is the thing we look to? I mean, when I was 13, I was consenting with anybody, and I'm not sure it did any good for my soul. So explain that a little.
2: So with regards to promiscuity, I don't necessarily think that it's, um, you know, having sex with a lot of people makes you feel bad. I think it's, you've got to look at what's driving the promiscuity to begin with. And I think a lot of women, um, because of what society has taught them, and yeah, just the way that we're sort of, raised to feel about ourselves and our bodies and sex and all this stuff, um, you know, women can be inclined to be promiscuous as a way to sort of try and fill this hole in their hearts, which can't be filled through sex, you know? Like, I'm very pro-sex, but, you know, it's not a coping mechanism. And so I think it's... I imagine the reason the studies would show that is because the type of people that would engage in promiscuous sex are, you know, using it as a coping mechanism, trying to fulfill something inside them and it's not necessarily a healthy approach so it's not I don't have any issues with people having a lot of sex but it's about the why behind where they're doing it if they're doing it to you know just generally have a fulfilling physical experience to connect with people and it's all very healthy and they don't need it to be okay then fair enough and obviously if it's coming from that place of lack of um, not feeling whole then yeah it's not going to be helpful
0: so just to summarize, you do believe it's possible for a young girl or an older woman, whatever, to arrive at a place where she can be what we call promiscuous and engage that way with many partners and it to be completely uh, normative and healthy and never damaging so long as she's not approaching it in a, as a means to gain intimacy or some other
3: reason?
2: Yeah, for sure, I know plenty of women like that. Um, How old are they? <laughs> I guess around my age, but I'd also question why you ask that question solely with women in mind. like Well, men, too. The
0: men too. But I read okay. the studies on women. Okay. So so, I, that's yeah.
2: interesting though that the studies are on women and that you bring it up through the lens of women. Because, yeah. you know, female promiscuity is always the, the thing, the thing that's being asked about. It's never male promiscuity. Right. And well,
0: typically male promiscuity, uh, it does affect the soul of the male. But I think uh, the studies show that the female promiscuity affects women more.
2: Yeah, and I think that's because women have been taught by society and various ideas to um that you know their their bodies are these objects to a degree, and you know we 've been taught to find to almost see our value through that lens and so it of course it makes women feel shitty if they 're like looking for something in sex and then they 're only ending up kind of feeling devalued because they 're not getting the intimacy they want through it whereas men haven 't been raised to have such a toxic relationship with their bodies with sex to be. To have it so tightly associated with you know their self worth
0: so you think it 's all conditioning
3: yeah. yeah
4: a lot yeah i'd say i 'd say it speaks more to our cultural views on women and sex than it does the actual act of sex got it um, i mean there's so many false narratives about sexuality, particularly women 's sexuality, you know they don 't enjoy it as much they 're not as promiscuous mm-hmm. that 's a big one when mm-hmm. in fact like women uh, tend to want more diversity or novel sexual relationships than even men often and they are very capable of enjoying sex and so you know when you have these shame-based narratives that's coming from a culture that has treated women as commodities for male sexual activity Mm -hmm. and where they're held to a high you know victorian standard of uh, fidelity while men aren't held to the exact same standard of course it puts so much psychological pressure on a woman and yet, I don't think it's like basic and human human intrinsic nature to be a monogamous or um marital even we We can see plenty of um aboriginal indigenous hunter gatherer cultures where um, polyamory is a part of the cohesiveness of the community, mm-hmm. and that it does strengthen social ties and it is a great good way of um, you know allowing for group intimacy and for the uh, reduction of tension mm-hmm. among among the group. So to take a hard stance that, oh, promiscuity is inherently bad, and even framing it as promiscuity versus mm-hmm. polyamory or something like that is already setting up a bias for this is negative, why mm-hmm. shouldn't it be? When in fact, it's, it's m- this whole syst- monogamic marital system, mm-hmm. even though it may work, I'm not trying to like throw it under the bus here. It is a relatively new iteration of human relationships, mm-hmm. and doesn't deserve the high pedestal that we've put it on. Mm-hmm. I mean, I ha- I just lived at a, uh, in a in a group with in Hawaii, and they were polyamorous. A woman there had a boyfriend in in Sweden to that day, and she died uh, at age like 96 the week mm-hmm. after I left. And you know, it worked for her their whole life, and she was there with her primary partner, and he was there with her. And you know, it works. And mm-hmm. And um, doesn't have to work for everybody, mm. but uh, yeah, maybe I'm just rambling now.
0: So revelatory! <laughs> I am so grateful for your transparency and saying this because uh, I know that uh, there is a large number of my generation and older whose mouths are agape right now. <laughs> <laughs> <They are> just, <laughs> what the shit is going to happen to this world <laughs> yeah. in the hands of this generation? Ah! That's exactly thats yeah, Ah,
4: but. Yeah, this is why ideas like consent matter, because we, we can say, okay, we don't have to be so dogmatic, and we don't have to be so shameful about sex, and um, granted, like, with any behavior, there are risks associated with that behavior, sure. so it's not just, you know, free love, everything goes, mm. you have to understand the risks, and you have to be careful about what you're doing, and you have to be open and honest with the people that you have relationships mm. with, and... Um, and, you're you describing
0: know, pretty much a utopian society yeah I right think. right yeah
4: but, it, but it, it's not it is ideal but like that's any system you want to have the uh, it, it's possible is all I'm saying got yeah. it and I'm not saying it's for everybody but it's possible and, our, and our, I think our generation is showing that yeah
0: do you think th- that was a, I'm glad oh that was <laughs> good uh, do you think I'm sorry we're almost out of time evil is there such a thing
2: Fundamentally, no. I, I mean, like, evil is a useful term, you know, to me, someone abusing a child is evil, that's a, but it's just a word, hmm. you know, like it's I very said. Very subjective usage. Yeah, mm-hmm. I believe we're all the products our genetics and experiences, as I keep harping on about, mm-hmm. so, um, to, you know, I guess I would use the term evil when describing situations where someone is the victim of a lot of suffering at the hand of another person, um, But a lot of evil acts are carried out by people who are psychopaths, literally do not have the ability to feel empathy. So, like, can you blame them for that? Um, And then also people that have been very traumatized as children who have never, you know, haven't developed healthily, um, mentally, all these things. And
4: a lot of bad things done by people who have the best intentions or who claim to have superior systems of morality or what have you so you
0: have you both have an explanation for evil uh, which is different than what the standard fare is for evil which is it's black it's dark it's bad it's wrong Mm -hmm. you would say no I think if we look at all the reasons behind the black dark wrong we do, wouldn't say it's evil we say it's a product of well, experience
4: yeah we, we could say evil because it's just it's just a relative term as all
2: yeah and i also think the value in understanding that evil potentially doesn't exist in the way people think like it's like people um, kind of subscribe to this myth that there's this core part of our brain that like we're choosing whether to be good or evil or i don't know however people see it the value in understanding that evil arises because of you know a set of conditions and all these interconnected factors, is then we're able to, you know, kind of dismantle systems that allow evil to be perpetuated. And instead of just, you know, looking at someone who's done a terrible thing and saying like, oh, he's just evil, it allows us to, you know, go back to consider why, what um, led to that person doing that thing. And then we can be much more effective at reducing evil than if we just say, oh, well, some people are just evil, or, you know, there's always been good and evil, and these kind of, like, abstract narratives that aren't rooted in neuroscience and reality, mm. it's so much more beneficial to, to recognize the limits of free will.
4: Yeah, who wakes up and says, like, I'm gonna be evil today, of course. Like, yeah, <laughs> That's and if they are, what's
2: led them to think like that, to but value yeah. evil
4: things. Yeah. Look at our, look at our criminal, criminal justice system. It's all based on the idea that people choose to do bad things. Right. And then what happens? Okay, well you need to be punished for the bad things you've done, and our recidivism rates are through the roof, sure. and we're just cycling people in and out of the prison for-profit prison system, mm-hmm. mind you, and um, not actually fixing the problem. Whereas in other in other countries and other cultures, where they're more about um, you know helping people through it, giving them the tools that they need to change the things, is so much better rather than just treating people as
0: well you chose this therefore so let me throw you just a couple things out that come to mind so you wouldn't in the classic sense say that marxism is evil you wouldn't say that the materialism of the mormon church in the 3.2 billion dollar mall is an expression of evil you would you'd say there's just a bunch of men who think that nice malls are good and they can prey upon people with ties. I, I could call
4: it evil.
2: Yeah, I don't not know. against the word evil. Yeah. It's no. still like a useful word. Do you sometimes. E- But
0: you, do you ever see anything? Do you see the pogroms in Russia? Do you see anything to bring up Hitler again? Do you see any mass movement as uh, being the product of evil? Well,
2: what, what is evil? You know, I I think.
0: Any, any mass. It's you guys are about eliminating suffering, so evil seems to me like it would cause
4: the, the intentional perpetuation of suffering. Yeah, yeah a mole- Of course, there's intentional perpetuation. beating up homosexuals. Is yeah. it evil? Yeah, yeah. Yeah.
2: So, yeah, you can use the word evil, but you also, yeah, recognize that these systems of suffering don't exist in a vacuum. Right.
3: Yeah.
0: Oh, I, I, would agree with that. Oh, absolutely. Yeah.
4: So yeah, there, there are people who are perpetuating. Systems and actions That cause suffering
2: And yeah. if I wouldn't use The word evil It's not Because I am like Diminishing The impact Of like The, the harm You know It's not To um, Like Belittle anyone's right. suffering It's it, It's not like that You know yeah.
4: Or to even pretend Like true maliciousness Doesn't exist Because
2: yeah. it, it does mm. But it doesn't exist In a vacuum
0: No yeah. So uh, And I, I'm saying No um, I understand What you mean Yeah Cool. Uh, finally we're out of time it's 10 o'clock we've gone two hours two quick hours um, yeah. you take your last breath <laughs> it's over done nothing beyond this was it
2: well our energy can't be uh, created or destroyed so. yeah. <laughs> something's happening but <laughs> I don't Believe in the continuation of a soul.
0: So seven. you like that that uh, thermodynamic rule? Yeah,
2: big into the second law of thermodynamics. Yeah.
0: So <laughs> yeah. you, you believe that applies to? Then, then what you're saying is there's something inside you that is generating the energy to move this corporal body around that is going to continue on because it can't be created or destroyed.
2: I'm, yeah, I mean, energy from my body will go into the earth wherever it goes. Um,
0: Will you, Samantha, exist?
2: Mm, I doubt it.
0: <laughs> you doubt it. Yeah. How about you?
4: Yeah, I don't think so. Um, which is why part of my like spiritual paradigm is learning to identify with the the whole of creation. Um, you know, if God is in all things and through all things, including myself, then then all of it is God, and all of it will continue to be all of it even after I've gone in the part that I've played in it and. And the things that I've contributed will go on, and that sense my spirit will live on. But I don't know if that there's like a, a tangible Tanner personality mm. that will
0: continue onward. Got it. Yeah, that was my question. Is there a tangible Tanner and Samantha?
2: And I
4: don't mean to say like I know that there's not. Yeah. I don't know. You just, but well, no one knows. Yeah, yeah. 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 But it doesn't. It, from what I understand now, it doesn't seem the case to me
2: a big thing that resonates with me is just the buddhist concept of everything being temporary Mm. um and we see that with the second law of thermodynamics for example like the earth is ultimately one organism and uh we like to think of ourselves as separate beings but none of us are separate beings because we are constantly like there's this constant interplay between you know we're molded by other people we're shaped by the food we like there's everything is interconnected is to say nothing of the
4: genetic code that you know has all kind of come down the family tree
2: exactly like yeah even trauma can be passed down through genetics through generations but anyway the earth is ultimately just this one organism or i guess the universe is ultimately you know this one thing and and we as humans for survival kind of need to view everything as separate we need to compartmentalize because it helps us navigate our experience as homo sapiens but ultimately everything is one
0: uh, last word association: uh, Jesus. Thoughts.
2: Dope.
3: <laughs>
0: Dope. And and by the way, that means good. <laughs> that means good. <laughs>
2: um,
4: Tanner, is this a one word or can I just whatever you ball? want? Um, I, a lot of my um, like coming to peace with my life. Has been, um, you know, when I left the Mormon church, I felt like I had to just reject everything outright. Um, and that was good because it allowed me to step away and then return back and see which parts I wanted to integrate back into my life. And I saw that there was a lot about um, Christianity that, um, regardless of how I feel about metaphysics or, you know, the non existence of a great white man in the sky, you know, or, or whatever model for God we want to use, um, I could still recognize that there was some beauty. Um, in the simplicity of his teachings mm-hmm. and in the power to um, affect human civilization mm-hmm. in a really lasting dramatic way mm-hmm. and so um, I've done a video on this about my my appreciation for Jesus as an atheist as a humanist mm-hmm. um, because a lot of what we term to be moral in today's society comes from that granted I think Christianity as a whole has been weaponized um, Against a lot of people and done a lot of harm and, and to this day remains a largely bastard bastardized endeavor. Don't disagree. Yeah. <laughs> um, that being said, I, I do have appreciation for the man, whoever he was. So not a myth. Not a myth. Not
3: I a don't legend. think. So. I, I think.
4: I think there's enough out yeah. there to to say yeah he was he was a real person. Yeah who, you know, was killed by the Romans or whatever, and the extent of his, like, political activism or, you know, the, the Gospels are second and third hands accounts. so, like, how much can we trust everything to be exactly the way he right. said it? But I, f- I feel like from my own experiences, um, my spiritual experiences have, have resonated so deeply, and I can look and say, ah, yeah, whatever, whatever he learned, whatever he experienced 2,000 years ago, I, in my own way, have felt a similar thing. And so I can appreciate that shared human experience. Wow!
0: Any final words for the audience? Uh, we love you. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks for watching. Yeah, thank you. Oh, we have a call. What line?
4: Oh, a cool. call. Well, wow. on an actual telephone. Well, wow, let's. Uh,
0: <laughs> you're on the air.
5: Hey, what's going on? This is Conk. I'm actually in the online chat watching. Hey, Tom. Hey. So. Um, is this just for you, or is uh, the Zelf duo there also?
0: No, the Zelf people are here.
3: Hi! <laughs> hey,
5: how's it going? Good to see you guys. Well, I mean, on the screen, I can't see you in the phone. <laughs> um, I have a question, uh, was gonna be a Sean, but it's funny because I think, uh, Sam and Tanner also brought it up, uh, which I thought was kind of interesting, but I wanted to talk about... Um, Christianity, specifically the New Testament, because I probably believe in the Christianarchy, you know, the faith is subjective, and all of that. And I actually just finished uh, Mexico Gunfight, and it was awesome. Awesome. Yeah, yeah. Um, and so, based on that, I've been trying to, I've been studying a lot of evolutionary psychology, and the differences between the sexes. So it's kind of funny when we were talking about like sex and sin and promise, promise beauty, you guys kind of brought that up anyway. And then the chat was kind of talking about it briefly. Um, I my original question was for Sean: uh, What when we have the subjective faith now, and all things are lawful, but not all things are beneficial? You know, we have uh, subjective, and it's more of a fluid morality. I would say, um, how does that apply to like promiscuity and premarital sex and all of those things? And then on top of that, how do how do we talk about if we do believe in no premarital sex, which I'm not sold on. Um, how do we explain like multiple wives and multiple concubines in the Old Testament? I, I well,
0: <laughs> from me, I don't. I don't uh, subscribe to any uh, stance that I think I'm going to tell another person. Everybody is up. To, it's up to themselves. Their God. Their choice. What I believe is their choice their freedom, whatever they think they want to do, they're gonna do it, and I am gonna, my responsibility as a Christian is to love them, irrespective of anything that they say, do, think, or believe. So, it's up to them. But I've always maintained that. In terms of the Old Testament, uh, you know, you can go back to Lamech, who was the first polygamist, he's the one who introduced Cain's son, and Sarah, uh, Abraham's wife, introduced Hagar, This was all the product of men and women coming up with ideas. Never do we see it authorized or ordained by God in the Old Testament. So I just don't. I don't. I just think it's something that men do or women do, and uh, we live with the results, which have always been disastrous, uh, at least in biblical sense. I don't know about uh, modern day times.
5: Okay. And then can I can I do a follow up question with uh, Sam and Tanner? Please do. if we have time, okay. So when you guys brought up, I saw Sam. Uh, I don't know from from at least seeing it online. It looked like she got kind of triggered when they were talking about the male and female promiscuity. And I'm just curious to ask them that they said they were atheists, but not the hardcore atheists. More of there's not enough evidence, right? Is what you guys said.
2: What What would be a more hardcore type of atheist than we are? Just curious.
5: Well, I think. I think Sean talked about it earlier when he said he's met people that said there is no God for sure, and there's a difference between that and saying I haven't seen evidence for God, so we'll see. You know what I mean?
2: Yeah, I mean, I guess, like, regardless of whether someone says I don't believe there's a God or I don't believe there's a God for sure, that's just, like, the language they're using, right? I mean, they, just like how a theist can say, I believe there's a god or there's a god for sure. It doesn't really make a difference either way in like what the reality is. That's just their Perspective like the strength of language. They're willing to use so I don't I don't necessarily think I'm any Different from a hardcore atheist in the sense that like we both just simply don't believe there's a god um, Sorry if this is getting too deep into this and you don't want this answer um, Yeah,
5: but well, this I actually mean I'm not kind of oppressive, I actually wanted to ask about like your guys' a stance on evolution in biology—like, do you believe the full Darwin's evolution, like we came from AIDS and evolved over time from Africa?
2: Yes, one hundred percent. And a, a book—I yeah. would, a book yeah. I would like to recommend to you <laughs> and anybody because it's my favorite book in the world. Is, yeah. called, is called *Sapiens*. That's even better
5: because you before you were saying you were talking about that the the stigma of. People saying women not bonding after promiscuous sex is social. But uh, I think there is a lot of psychology, evolutionary psychology, that would say that's true on a biological level through evolution.
0: Some I'm going to let uh, Samantha respond to that. We are w- away over time, but I really appreciate your call in, my friend. Oh,
5: yeah. Awesome.
0: Thank you. Thanks. Go ahead and wrap that up.
2: So what was the question? I have <laughs> no idea.
0: I think he was, Yeah, I don't know uh look at part of the problem with the discussion on sex with uh men and women and gender is i'm old school and i'm not educated on some of the things now and so i bring that to the table and i'll stick my foot in it but Mm -hmm. you know we i think we covered it pretty well and um i really appreciate it you guys uh for being here on the show and i really appreciate your honesty and your uh, transparency and uh, being willing to come and share this with us and uh, maybe we can have you back after uh, all the flames uh, come at <laughs> and, and everything else and, cool. uh, and go from there. So thanks so much. Bless yeah. you. This thank feels you. like the best uh, televangelist experience we could hope Amazing. for. <laughs> oh, I hope so. Yeah. Thanks. Yeah.
2: More Christ-like than Christians we ever meet. Oh,
0: thank you. That, that's, uh, yeah, thanks so much. And uh, remember, Christy Johnson's uh, week from Thursday. Go to her event and check out Zelf on the Shelf. .com and especially on YouTube, right? Yeah. And, uh, and just keep the conversations going because as they pointed out, you know, this is where the love starts to come out and we can start to understand
2: people a little bit better. We'll see you next week here on Heart of the Matter.